Welcome to Maximus Call-In Radio Show number 10. Uh, tonight we had some really great call-in questions about dealing with anxiety when you have a big event coming up. Um, we had a question about uh, the book King Warrior Magician Lover and sort of how do you reconcile these archetypes with sort of science and evidence. Um, we had some questions about measuring your free and total testosterone and how do you optimize your hormone functioning. So for all this and more, uh, check out the rest of this call and radio show. I was reading uh, King Warrior Magician Lover. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible book. And this is more of a, I guess, a little bit more of a philosophical question. Mm. Uh, as in, mean, how do you, you know, this is something that uh, he, I guess, I would say dreamt up, mm-hmm. to use a terrible word. So how does one reconcile this whole, whole uh, Indian philosophy of archetypes with evidence-based? What is, like, for <clears> me, it's a big block of reading any of this material. Right. It's like, uh, you know, it sounds like reading a you know, ancient epic. <laughs> yeah, it's fair enough. So <clears throat> it's a great question. And for people who, just to give you a little bit of context, um, Ritesh is asking about a classic book that I actually really love and recommend called King Warrior Magician Lover. In fact, if you look at my uh, Twitter profile, it actually has the emoji for all four of those. And so uh, that's my that's my little like signal to the world. I actually had someone DM me the other day um, I don't. I don't mention the words. I just have the emojis, and people who've read the book, they're like, "Is that King Warrior Magician Lover?" And I'm like, "Yeah, good eye." So it, it's kind of just like a fun, uh, like code for people in the know. Um, but it's a great book. It's written by Robert Moore and Doug Gillette. Uh, Robert Moore was actually a Jungian analyst um, and a real expert um, in that philosophy and school of thought. I am not a Jungian analyst. Um, my primary orientation, as I was answering Ben's question, is act. <clears throat> but I'm somewhat familiar with the work. And I, like you, Ritesh, uh, really try to only kind of entertain things that are scientifically based, right? So I, I literally teach and practice evidence-based therapy. And so it's a great question because I, I think about this too. Like, how do I reconcile, you know, more in Gillette's work, which is which is not empirically derived, right? He didn't like do a study and decide, oh, okay, there are four parts or selves to you and they are the king warrior magician lover that's what he kind of calls them right but do these actually exist um who knows quite frankly but i think you know one of the things um there's two ways that i reconcile this one of the philosophies that come from act and you kind of heard me say this when i was talking to ben too about all the different techniques that you can use to manage anxiety ultimately the rubric of something is is it effective, right? Or is it useful? Now, I do think it is useful to know if an underlying theory is sound or grounded in science, right? Because it could be effective for another reason. Maybe it's just a placebo effect, right? That's why we do double-blind randomized control trials to make sure that even if something is effective, it's not just due to the power of placebo or belief. But in this context, the question is, you know, do these sort of four masculine archetypes, are these useful for being a better man. And I would argue this book has been around for so long. It's been read by so many people. It's uh, uh, certainly a framework that's used in neo-Jungian psychotherapy. So I would say the um, the accumulation of a lot of cl- clinical evidence in terms of psychotherapy um, and a lot of just anecdotal, quite frankly, evidence from people who've read the book incorporated into their lives, 
the overwhelming feedback that I've gotten from people who've read it and heard it or uh, used it as part of their therapy practice has been overwhelmingly positive. So I would say on the basis of that, um, you know, a lot of books get published. They may be popular for a little while and they kind of fall out of favor or get fall out of print. This book is a kind of perennially popular, at least within the circle of people who are interested in it, particularly I would say for guys who are interested in uh, being more mature, more effective men. And so um, I think it's very aligned with that sort of do what works uh, philosophy. And then in terms of the underlying principle, I actually do think it is um, very aligned with uh, a particular process and act called self as context or otherwise known as self as story, right? So in act, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about earlier was diffusing from your thoughts, diffusing from your feelings, meaning that you don't take your thoughts and feelings literally because they're not always accurate. Uh, sometimes they in fact uh, deceive or lie to you, right? You can feel anxious about something that's not legitimately a threat, right? Like you, you're worried about contracting some rare disease and like the, the odds are like one in one million of that happening, right? So, you know, thoughts and feelings are obviously not true all the time. And so it's not useful to listen to them or take them literally. Sometimes they're just thoughts. And by the way, people have a lot of experience of this. People have all kinds of uh, intrusive, crazy thoughts all the time about, am I gonna jump off a cliff? Am I gonna harm this baby? Uh, they're just random thoughts, but it doesn't mean we're gonna act on them, right? And in fact, when people believe that they act on them, that's how they get sort of OCD or, or uh, manifest their presentation as having OCD. So just as we diffuse from thoughts and feelings, we can also diffuse from our story or a narrative about ourselves, right? All of us have a story about ourselves where, where you know Ben's story might be, I'm a doctor, therefore I am smart and competent and X, Y, and Z, because that's the role that I've signed up to play in modern society. And obviously, if something violates that, you fail your step one exam, or you do something stupid, and they're like, man, are you in medical school? Uh, that might sort of obviously uh, make us feel bad because it violates that story or that belief about ourselves, right? So if we are too rigidly attached to our story, and you say, I can only be smart and competent, and I have to be perfect at all times, then yeah, you're gonna probably suffer a lot in life. Versus if you even hold your story or your narrative flexibly and just say, hey, look, yes, when I put on the white coat, I, it is kind of a, it's kind of a suit. And yes, there's a role that I play, but it doesn't mean that I'm not a human being. I'm not gonna be smart about every single topic. I'm gonna, I have flaws, I fail, I make mistakes, just like any, any uh, human being does. And so, when you do mess up, when you do fail, when you do make a mistake, it doesn't violate yourself a story as much because you're like, oh, it's just a story. I know that, uh, you know, before going to medical school, I, I, I wasn't just a doctor. That wasn't part of my narrative. I was a son. I was a brother. I was just a random guy who likes to play video games. There's many other stories that we create or narratives that we create about ourselves. So we shouldn't rigidly stick to one, right? So that's basically self as context or self as story in act. So that process is part of an evidence-based framework. And so how I integrate it is um, you can think about like if your belief or your story about yourself is just a story, that means there are multiple stories. There's multiple narratives that you can create about yourself. And then you can think about it as you go through life, you probably will create more, right? When you get married, 
you, you take on a new story or role as a, fa- as a husband. And obviously, as you have children, you take on this new role as a father, right? So you, you create like the, the um, subsequent chapters to your story, which evolve over the lifespan. And so accordingly, I think you can fit in those masculine archetypes as essentially multiple selves or different parts of you, right? And so if you don't like the, the title sort of king, warrior, magician, lover, I think about it really practically, right? Which is instead of saying, is it true that, we, that every man has a king, warrior, magician, lover uh, inside of them, um, you can think about them as kind of valued domains, right? King, the king archetype represents the leadership of the self, right? It's the part of you that is hopefully a little bit in charge and kind of uh, curates or is like the, the executive chairman of your board. Um, it provides, uh, you know, blessings and guidance to all the part of you. And so you, that's the part of you that can help accept yourself uh, and provide direction and make sure that you're heading in the right direction in life. The warrior is obviously the physicality. You can think about that as the health domain. So, uh, you know, obviously we talked a lot about optimizing your health. So that's the part of you that's responsible for that. The magician, if you think about it, is sort of the intellect, the creativity, the part of you that's um, responsible for your professional development and career success. Uh, And then finally, the lover obviously uh, is responsible for your relationships, whether intimate or otherwise. And so if you ask any guy, is your, you know, being a, a, a leader um, and being in charge of your life important to you? Is your health important to you? Is your career important to you? And are your relationships important to you? Clearly, yes. I, they're almost like four universal domains uh, that are valuable to people. And so um, as part of that, I think it's a very useful framework to think about, well, if these four things that are important to me, they may be competing with one another, right? Obviously, you know, we spend a lot of time as men on our careers, sometimes to the detriment of our health or our relationship. Or sometimes if in kind of Ben's example, we're pulled away from, uh, um, you know, the things that we need to do because we're trying to fight or avoid our anxiety, we're not exercising sort of leadership of the self, right? There's another part of us that's just like kind of the scared little boy who doesn't want to fail his step one exams that's, that's taking us away from a valued direction in our lives. And so, um, it can be useful to, to think about that, you know, a lot of times it may be helpful to explain why we don't always do the things that we know we need to do, right? Rationally, we know procrastination is not a helpful thing yet. All of us, including myself do it quite often. Right. And so I think it's a useful framework to realize yeah, it's, look, it's not like we're idiots. It's, um, we know that it's not in our self-interest to procrastinate, but if you think about, it's not just us, but there's four parts of us, right? The king, warrior, magician, lover, health, <coughs> physicality, relationships, and intellect slash creativity. Um, you have to, they're almost like warring energies or competing energies, which makes sense then why we would procrastinate because these things are almost like vying for control. And so if you recognize that and you say, okay, these are different parts of myself, just like you don't buy into any particular story or belief about yourself, you can uh, essentially address these different components. And almost like I said, um, as the king, leader, chairperson of your life, you can essentially talk to these different parts of yourselves. You can reconcile them. You can even maybe negotiate and make compromises, right? Where you can say, hey, uh, to Katerina's point, from now until April, when I have to study for this step one exam, 
I'm going to be very focused on the kind of this magician slash professional side of myself in order to ace this exam and accelerate my professional development. Now, this may come at the detriment of um, the lover in terms of my relationships, right? I'm not going to heavily invest. I'm not going to be going out a lot. And so that part of me may be upset and screaming out because I feel lonely. I feel uh, disconnected socially. I may be lacking physical touch and intimacy. And so how do I reconcile that? So you may literally have conversations with yourself and say, okay, in order to get your cooperation to study really hard Monday through Friday on the weekend, I'm going to allow myself to go get a massage, right? And, 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 uh, because I appreciate sort of physical touches, um, or maybe I'll go on a date or maybe I'll go out and have dinner with a group of friends in order to build that relationship. So are you willing to kind of give me kind of a couple of days of solid work in order to let me kind of give you what you want in terms of physical and social connection, intimacy, et cetera. So it's almost like if you think about it, you're like the father of like, I like to say three boys um, and you are constantly negotiating. You're not supposed to be an authoritarian leader and just be like, all you do is work and study all day. We know that if we do that, uh, that backfires, right? We get this kind of rebelliousness, procrastination parts of you because look, you're, you're a human being and there's, there's other needs than just one singular need to be uh, a professional or whatever that you're kind of pursuing doggedly or single-mindedly. You have to kind of negotiate these different parts of you, um, which I think is very in line with this sort of selfish story uh, kind of process. So that's how I kind of think about it. That's how I kind of work with clients around this is if I see a lot of um, acting out or a lot of procrastination or a lot of like, I, I, I say I want to do something, but I can't kind of will myself to do it. Instead of just trying to push, push, push some more, um, you may want to kind of explore, you know, what are sort of these competing, whether you want to call them selves, energies or archetypes that may be, you know, pulling someone in the wrong direction and they may not be attending to um, or they might have banished those parts of themselves and they sort of they kind of sit in the shadow as Jung would say um, and they cause trouble um, and so how we do that is we kind of re-welcome them into the fold bring them back into the light uh, engage acknowledge and validate those parts of us that we may have been uh, ignoring and saying okay I have to be a reasonable human being I have to give you what you want and your needs to a reasonable degree as well so that I can elicit your cooperation and we can kind of work together as one to be the man that we want to be. Thank you. That was that was truly incredible. I haven't read the whole book yet, but I think your explanation actually you know, appeals to me more than sort of books more sort of archetypes. So. Fair, fair enough. And and for pe people who are really interested in this, um, I have a couple different recommendations. If you if you want to just kind of get like the TLDR version of it. Um, uh, I believe there's a blog uh, that summarized King Warrior Magician Lover. I believe it's Art of Charm or Art of Manliness. We'll put the, the links after the show. It'll, it'll give you like a, a nice like five to 10 page summary of it. Um, that's a great starting place. If you're really interested, obviously go buy the book and read it. I think it's fantastic. And if you're, if you're super, super interested after reading the book, he actually published one book per archetype. There's a whole book on the king, whole book on the warrior, et cetera, that really deep dives into it. Um, and there's also a YouTube series where he has 24 hours of lecture material. If you really want to just go down the, you know, Robert Moore Jungian uh, uh, rabbit hole, it definitely starts, does get a little bit esoteric once you're getting into that level of content. But if you love it, then feel free to do it. One final thing is uh, there's a great YouTube channel called um, like Stories of Old, I believe it's called, 
um, and he uses uh, movies to depict the archetypes, right? So he takes like a Lord of the Rings to exemplify the king archetype because obviously Return of the King is literally one of the, the movies of Lord of the Rings. Um, Moonlight, I think, to uh, portray the lover archetype, etc. And so he uses really classical film descriptions and does a wonderful job. They're only like five to 10 minutes long, these YouTube videos, to describe the archetype in a really full and rich way. And you could tell like he's read all the books. And so he uses the movies to kind of explain them in a really neat way, uh, which I really love and I highly recommend. So uh, check those out as well. Um, so it's a great, great resource. Cool. So yeah, we have a question from last week uh, from Sebastian via Discord. He asked, uh, hi, I'm 27 years old, got blood test results today. So far, total testosterone seems pretty low, even if in range. Total testosterone, 4.21 NG slash ML. Free testosterone, 21.7 PG slash ML. Comments? Thank you. Did they provide the reference ranges for those? Okay, so that's the first thing that I would say is, um, so it sounds like this uh, caller has gotten their total and free testosterone levels checked, which is great. And I think we've talked about in previous radio shows, I actually suggest um, all adult men as part of their annual physical exam, ask their uh, physician to you know do a routine blood test. And if, the, if they're willing also to check their hormone levels, um, just to you know make sure that you're, uh, not only uh, not having low testosterone, but also making sure that they're optimal as well. Um, so you can't sort of interpret it without the, the reference ranges. What a reference range is, is usually when you get a lab result, you also get what's called a reference range. Um, and usually that's a 95% confidence interval. So it'll say for, you know, uh, men, adult men, this is basically, um, you know, the second and a half percentile to the 97th and a half percentile and kind of the 95, 95 percentiles in between. So if you're within the normal range or you're within that bound, which applies to 95% of people, then your levels are considered normal. The thing that I think is really important to um, distinguish, though, is just because your levels are not abnormal does not mean your hormone levels or any other reference range are optimal. There's a difference between abnormal and unoptimal. Abnormal, by definition, means your levels have to be in the second and a half percentile or lower, which is really, really low testosterone levels. If you're looking at like a total testosterone level, and most of the reference ranges are usually between like 300 and 900, I believe, nanograms per deciliter, if I'm getting the units right. Um, this person, I think, chimed in, and uh, Victor, you said it was like 4.21. This is a different scale, essentially, that they're using. So I, it's hard for me to interpret. But most of the time, total testosterone is uh, kind of in that 300 to 900 range. Your, your levels would have to be in kind of the 200s or lower to be considered deficient or what's clinically called hypogonadal. Um, but that doesn't mean it's optimal, right? Like you, your levels could be in the fifth percentile, meaning 95% of guys uh, are higher than you and you're still considered normal. So reference ranges are really only telling you if you're extreme, essentially, right? You have an extreme abnormality or same thing on the higher end that you're extremely high in some rare cases. Um, I generally think kind of 300 to 900 is the general reference range, but the, the more like median amount is, I would say more like 400 to 600 is what like an average guy will have. Um, but I would argue optimal levels are closer to that 
you know, uh, 750, 800, 850, 900 range. Uh, that would put you in like the 75th, 80th, uh, 90th percentile range. So um, that's how I would interpret those results. Um, I do think free testosterone is a more useful measure than total testosterone. So just a really, really quick physiological lesson. Testosterone is basically bound to two different proteins. One's called albumin and the other one is called SHBG or sex hormone binding globulin. Um, these basically inhibit the function of testosterone in terms of binding to the androgen receptor. And so you, what, you measure free testosterone. So that's the the unbound form of the testosterone that's not bound to albumin or sex hormone blinding globulin that can freely bind to the androgen receptor. So that's the one that's responsible for the biological activity like building muscle uh, that people associate with testosterone. The only tricky thing about free testosterone though is you have to make sure that you're measuring the right kind. Um, so the if you go to a Quest or a LabCorp, which are the two major labs in the United States, Make sure if you're if you're going and getting the test that first of all it's LCMS. LCMS is liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. It's just basically a more accurate version of the test uh, versus what's called an immunoassay. And then uh, on top of that, you want to make sure you're getting the right LCMS test. I know this is very complicated, but Quest. If you go to Quest, um, automatically their LCMS test is the right one, and that's an equilibrium dialysis. That's considered the gold standard of the most accurate version of free testosterone. If you go to LabCorp, however, you have to specify that. So I think there's there's uh, two two ones that are good, two types of tests that are good. One's called equilibrium dialysis. The other one's called ultrafiltration method. They're both LCMS tests. Those are what are considered the more accurate free testosterone measures. If you just kind of get the immunoassay, uh, free testosterone. It's uh, directionally accurate. It's, I'm not saying it's totally inaccurate, but it's not as good as the gold standards. So that's the best way. That's the most accurate way to measure free testosterone. If you uh, don't have sort of the, the time or money or means to go get that, the easier way of doing it um, is just get your total testosterone level checked. Um, I do prefer LCMS for that test as well. Uh, it's a little bit more accurate than the LCMS. Um, but the other thing you can do is if you're getting it part of your, as done as part of your routine blood work, um, albumin is automatically measured um, as part of a, a, a CBC or CMP. Um, and so you'll know that number. Um, and then you're going to ask for a second test, which is that SHBG uh, protein that I mentioned. Basically, my recommendation is uh, get a total testosterone and an SHBG and then calculate it yourself or get a very accurate free testosterone. But if you do, make sure you get the right one, which is an LCMS uh, equilibrium dialysis test. So um, uh, I know that was a lot, but these are all recorded. You can go back and just listen to the podcast to make sure that you pick up the right ones. Or if you have any questions, um, just go to our uh, Discord channel. We have a Dr. Cam radio show um, and I'll type these things out so that you can have them for your reference. You can bring it up with your doctor when you know you want to ask them about getting these labs measured. Um, so finally, when you get these numbers, you can kind of look up for your age bracket what is um, kind of age appropriate. Because obviously, if you're 70 versus you're 20, your testosterone levels uh, may be different. Um, they do tend to go down um, generally about one percent per year. Um, so you can kind of like roughly do the math there. Um, so, you know, if you're young, you'd want your testosterone levels, like I said, to be 
maybe 600-ish, right? The top of that 400 to 600 kind of median range that I mentioned. Um, and it'll kind of slowly de like decline with age where if you're kind of middle-aged, maybe it's closer to 500. If you're very elderly, maybe it's closer to 400, right? So I would say, yeah, that's why 400 to 600 is a useful range for everyone. A little bit higher for young people, a little bit lower for older people. Um, you can kind of ballpark yourself. Now, if we're talking about optimization, which I think a lot of people in this community care about, um, you really want to get to that, that top of that range where I said, you know, like I said, getting to 800, getting to 900, um, so that you can be, a, you know, essentially kind of an alpha male if you want to, uh, you know, physiologically describe it as such. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, I, you know, mentioned some of these on Twitter, um, you know, in terms of the lifestyle uh, behaviors that we should do. Obviously, you should try to get seven to nine hours of sleep. Um, there's clear research that shows that testosterone uh, is linearly correlated with up to eight hours of sleep. So people who get eight hours of sleep have more testosterone than guys who get seven or six or less hours of sleep. So sleep is by far the best foundational behavior that you can do to make sure that you're endogenously or naturally producing as much testosterone as possible. You should obviously eat uh, a healthy uh, anti-inflammatory diet, anti-inflammatory meaning, you know, don't eat a bunch of refined, uh, ultra processed junk food, right? The less nutrition labels, quite frankly, the better eat like meat, seafood, produce, fruits, vegetables that don't have any nutrition labels. Those are naturally anti-inflammatory. It's the easiest rule of thumb to follow. The other particular thing though, if we're talking about hormone optimization is, um, you do want to consume a reasonable amount of saturated fats, including cholesterol, because that's a substrate for converting into hormones such as testosterone. So like things like egg yolks, uh, red meat, uh, the, the natural um, you know, fatty acids that are found in fish and seafood are all helpful substrates for optimal testosterone production. And the other thing I might say though is um, uh, generally, although I, I am a fan of lower carb diets, um, if you're doing extreme low carb uh, or extreme low calories, it may be harmful to testosterone production. So if you're eating zero carbs or you're at a less than, let's say, uh, greater than 200 cal uh, caloric deficit, uh, it may not be optimal. So um, you can still eat relatively low carb and still be in keto. We've talked about this. Um, if you're dropping weight, you want to do it gradually. So you're cutting, let's say, 100 to 200 calories a day and you're kind of gradually losing the weight. But if you go on a crash diet and you're doing anything extreme, it can kind of disrupt hormone functioning. So I would just say be careful about doing any sort of extreme, uh, extremely, extremely low carb, extremely low calorie, or extreme intermittent fasting. Same thing where you're fasting for very long periods of time. Um, you know, uh, they can kind of screw around with your hormones. So uh, make sure you optimize your nutrition. Obviously, we talked a lot with Ben's question about optimizing, uh, managing your stress. So make sure your cortisol levels aren't through the roof. Cortisol is catabolic and kind of counteracts the effect of testosterone. Uh, optimal in intimate relationships. You know, obviously, if you're spending time with a partner, you're sexually active, you, there's a lot of touch and intimacy involved that can actually increase testosterone levels. We are social creatures. There's, in fact, even evidence that like rooting for your favorite team and having them win at a baseball or football game increases your testosterone, at least temporarily or acutely. Um, but yeah, you don't don't discount the social factor um, you know, as well. And then same thing, uh, if you're spending so much time in front of a computer, I don't think there's a lot of clear research on this, but, you know, uh, mechanistically, it makes sense that if you're addicted to the internet, pornography, gaming, and you're spending, you know, 
hours a day on it, it's probably not gonna be optimal for your testosterone versus getting outside in the sun, uh, spending time in you know uh, clean, fresh air and getting vitamin D produced um, through the conversion in your skin is gonna be much better for your testosterone production, I would argue, than a, sitting under a bunch of artificial light and the glow of the computer screen. So make sure you're you know getting sunlight and getting enough uh, endogenous vitamin D production. Obviously, if you live, it's wintertime in a, um, a place that does, doesn't get a lot of sun, uh, you may wanna optimize your vitamin D levels in order to have uh, that support your testosterone levels. And finally, uh, you know, this is something that our company is working on as well. We're going to have uh, some very, very interesting, uh, cool stuff that um, we'll talk about later that can help people uh, really get up to that those optimal ranges, um, just like professional athletes and people who are, you know, uh, functioning at a very high performance level have. Yeah, so my question kind of um, revolves around the fact that my med school class is really preparing for our first board exam now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a really high stakes exam, as a usual, residency selection process. Um, and it's been really, it's been hard to watch classmates kind of struggle under the stress of this process. Mm -hmm. um, people that I've known for a year and a half now, and you're watching like their personality change, mm -hmm. you're watching them struggle with this. Um, I think part of what's weird about it is it's almost like a, it's an acute stress that you're feeling for a long period of time you know, right. as you're preparing for this exam months at a time. So I wondered what ideas, resources, you know, are kind of out there to, to help folks deal with this as well as, you know, anything that's worked for your clients um, who dealt with these situations. It could even be something, you know, like a divorce that's, you know, you're dealing with an acute stressor for a long period of time. Yeah. Well, well, maybe the best proxy is any sort of event where um, it kind of all falls on one day because you, you do take the exam and uh, over the course of, is it one day? Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's one day. And for most of us, it's at the end of April. So you're crunch time now where like it's, it's coming up and it just, it feels a lot more real, I think for a lot of folks. For sure. So I think, um, you know, whether or not you're a medical student, it could be an athlete waiting for a big game day. Um, it could be an employee waiting for an annual performance review um, or so or anything where it kind of falls upon one particular momentous occasion, I think there can be a lot of anticipatory anxiety in, in these kind of situations, which can build up and almost become like a huge burden on people's backs, um, especially when it has a lot of, you know, real and tangible implications, obviously how you do on, you know, this exam, um, it doesn't determine, you know, I would say your, your entire career as a physician, but it can, uh, you know, at least point you in the right direction if you're trying to, you know, get into a competitive residency program per se. So, um, you know, I, the the thing is, I th first of all, like I, I validate, you know, people going through that process. I train actually psychiatry residents who've gone through that when they were medical students. So um, th th I don't think there's like an easy or um, quite frankly, like a uh, quick solution to just dealing with an ominous uh you know, anxiety that's hanging over your head until you take an exam in April. Um, but maybe as a place to start, Ben, I'd actually love, um, since, I mean, you, you, I assume you're in the same class that you're referring to. So I'd love to hear actually how you're thinking about it and approaching it and handling it. Yeah, I think, I don't know if this is the correct term for it, but I think I, it's more of like a stoic philosophy, I guess. Mm -hmm. like, I know this is out there. I know, you know, I've got a study plan laid out. I've got the steps I'm going to take. Um, and really, I think for me personally, beyond that, you know, any additional worry, anxiety, things like that isn't, isn't productive. You know, it doesn't help you. It just kind of gets you more wired up. It can even be distracting when you're studying. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I've kind of tried to 
channeled the original anxiety and things into making the study plan. And that was just kind of, for me, it's sticking to the plan. Um, but I, I've just noticed a lot of my classmates feel like more worked out, more anxious. And it's, it's gotten to the point where, you know, it's noticeable in everyday interactions and things like that. Yeah. You know, I think this is part of the issue too, is when you're surrounded by it, there's almost this like affect contagion is what we call it in psychology. It's like the emotions are contagious in and of themselves. And so if you have people who are stressed or freaking out, it rubs off on other people because they start thinking to themselves, oh, should I be, you know, uh, am I not sufficiently worried if this person started taking it seriously? Am I not taking it seriously enough? Which, you know, it makes sense from, a, you know, evolutionary context. If you're like in a, in a village or tribe-like context and someone has a ton of anxiety, maybe they know something that you don't know. And you, that there's almost like a, a, a negative FOMO, uh, that that's happening. So, um, and so it's useful to have people talk through that and, and almost be a little bit more realistic in their thinking, um, so that they don't think they've created this very black and white scenario where the only way to be happy in life is to be a dermatologist. Otherwise I'm a miserable human being. It's useful to kind of diffuse from those thoughts, right? So you can notice like as you're sitting there and you're studying for the step one exam, right? You're in the library and you're trying to focus, but this thought keeps popping up. Oh my God, what if I fail this exam? Oh my God, what if I don't become a dermatologist? What will I do? Life will be terrible. I will be unhappy. And you can just notice that script or that narrative playing out. So instead of it being right in front of your face and it's all sort of consuming you and you're believing it to be true, you don't, you just kind of look at it a little bit from a distance and be like, huh, okay, thanks mind for, for giving me this thought. I'm trying to study right now, but uh, I know you're trying to protect me. I know you're having, you're trying to make sure that I do well on this exam, but this is not particularly helpful at this present moment. So you can keep on talking or chitter chattering in the background, but I'm going to reorient my attention to focusing on this exam. So in, in that exercise, what you're doing is you're sort of de-literalizing thoughts. You're not taking them literally. So you don't have to sit there and necessarily dispute them or argue with that part of you that's worried, right? Because maybe that's kind of like your amygdala response of uh, it's kind of fear-driven uh, uh, irrationality. You can just acknowledge and say, hey, look, there's a uh, maybe a different, uh, more primal part of me that's just always going to be afraid. And I just care too much about being a great doctor that I'm always going to be a little bit anxious. So my job is just every time those sort of thoughts pop up, I can just recognize them. I can see them for what they are. And I don't need to attend to them. I don't need to ruminate excessively on them. I can just kind of watch them come and go like leaves on a stream um, and just let them drift by and reorient my attention. The other part of it that I think really though is critical is also, um, which comes from ACT, is a willingness to experience the negative emotion, right? Uh, as you mentioned, when you're observing your classmates, right, as, as the date comes closer and closer to the exam, people get more and more worked up, right? They're, they're feeling the anxiety. And so what starts to happen is a lot of avoidance behaviors, right? People start procrastinating because they're like, oh, just sitting there and even the act of studying reminds me of this uh, you know, momentous occasion and I don't like feeling anxious. And so I'm going to put it off. I'm going to watch my Netflix. I'm going to do whatever I do to numb, distract, or avoid myself from those feelings. And so to, to almost take the opposite approach, um, uh, I think it's actually very useful, particularly working with students that are probably, you know, like naturally going to be anxious to some degree. Um, it's changing the objective, which is saying, look, you don't need to make the anxiety go away. 
in order to study for this exam. In fact, we know from research, there's something called the Yerkes-Dodson law, which I probably mentioned before, a moderate amount of anxiety actually helps you. If you had zero anxiety, right? You shut off your stress response with a beta blocker, which, which uh, dampens your sympathetic nervous system, you'd actually be really sleepy and it probably impairs, in fact, you know, your working memory. Now, on the other hand, you don't want too much anxiety where you're sitting there like jittery because you're hopped up on caffeine and you're worried that, you know, the, the world is going to be over. You want that happy Goldilocks zone of moderate amount of anxiety, actually. Um, and so if you think about it from that perspective, you want some anxiety. And in fact, you should be practicing a willingness to have that anxiety and bring it along with you as kind of a companion for the ride. And so just as I'm sort of using this externalization to talk about uh, thoughts, you can do the same thing with your feelings and just say, hey, look, I don't like anxiety. I wouldn't necessarily want anxiety in this moment, but it's going to be there anyway. So I might as well just kind of bring it along with me. Um, you know, when I go study in my cubicle, I'll, I feel it in my sort of chest and belly. Um, and yeah, uh, but it's, I'm not going to sit there and procrastinate just because I have those feelings. I don't need to make them go away. I don't need to wait for them to dissipate or go down. I can just literally study with a 50% moderate amount of anxiety and, uh, bring it along for the ride. So that, that willingness is a totally different metric, right? So instead of saying, I need to make my anxiety go away, you're just saying, in fact, I need to just increase my willingness. So if you think about them as almost like two volume knobs, right? The way the metaphor that we describe it in ACT is if you think about your anxiety on a zero to 10 scale, let's say you're, you or your classmates anxiety is an eight out of 10, right? So pretty high level of anxiety. And you're doing all these efforts to try to make that anxiety go down. But what the thing that you notice is every time you push the knob down, it comes back up. You procrastinate for an hour, your anxiety goes down, and then it comes right back up when it's time to study, right? It's not a, it's not a good long-term solution. Instead of trying to fight this battle with your anxiety in terms of constantly playing whack-a-mole and trying to get it to go down, the alternative is to just increase your willingness, right? People's willingness to anxiety may be a two out of 10. And so eight minus two is six. So six is basically the suffering that you're experiencing because you are unwilling to experience your anxiety. And so the cure for that, which is not the cure for anxiety, the cure for that is, for cure for suffering, I should say, is to increase your willingness. So if your willingness is an eight out of 10, and your anxiety is an eight out of 10, the difference is zero and you have no suffering, right? You have some um, unpleasant anxiety, which is clean pain, it's natural, but you're not sitting there and having any unnecessary suffering or dirty pain that comes from the unwillingness to have the anxiety, right? The, the more that we try to resist it essentially, the worse that it gets. So instead of making anxiety the enemy, I always say try to make anxiety your friend. Literally befriend it and say, hey, look, you're going to be here anyway. Uh, maybe I didn't necessarily want or wish you to be here. But if you're going to be here, uh, let me make you, let's be allies. Let me make you my friend and you can come along for the ride. Because to my point earlier, I do need some of you uh, and to care enough about this to put in full my full effort. And then, yeah, maybe I didn't wish it was an 8 out of 10. Maybe I wish it was a 5. But I'm not going to play that game of trying to, um, you know, reduce my anxiety because it probably just actually rebounds and makes it worse. So all I'm going to focus on is cultivating a willingness to have an anxiety. And if you do that, then it's like you're stepping out of the battle, right? It's like instead of playing tug of war with your anxiety, you're dropping the rope is the metaphor that we make and saying, you know what? I'm a first year medical student. I care about this exam. I want to be a dermatologist. I acknowledge and I own that fully. And that means 
I'm gonna have a little bit of anxiety and that's okay. I'm willing to have it. I don't need to make it go away. I don't need to vent to all my classmates. I don't need to make other people nervous. I can just hold it as a mature man and saying, yes, I have it, I own it. I feel a little bit of anxious, but it's not a problem. It's not a problem. And the more that you tell yourself that and you actually genuinely believe it, it's not a problem, then it becomes an ally and you get step out of the struggle, which allows you the freedom to focus on what you need to do, which is to do what as well as you can on this exam and obviously live the rest of your life. So uh, those are a couple of really good evidence-based techniques from both CBT and ACT in order to deal with anxiety. And you can kind of go through, you can use it step-by-step, step. you can do the cognitive restructuring, uh, you know, uh, reducing the, the unrealisticness of, you know, the thoughts, decatastrophizing, and then moving on to, um, using sort of mindfulness and willingness techniques. Um, or if you want to just skip to a little bit of the act stuff and use just mindfulness and willingness and you find that's effective, then use that too. My kind of philosophy when it comes to psychology is look, use what's effective and discard the rest. So you have to kind of try out these different techniques, see what's effective, um, and, and use what's good for you. Um, just one last uh, note. I actually, uh, one of our uh, uh, callers um, wanted to chime in. Uh, who's actually uh, uh, one of our female listeners. She says um, she kind of goes into her own version of Buddhist monk mode and just makes a checklist that uh, she follows every day that includes things like meditation, uh, working out, etc. So sometimes uh, structure, to her point, can be very helpful too. It's just saying, hey, look, I'm going to have a really busy life between now and April when I take this exam. So let me schedule in uh, not only my studying, but my self-care and just go through it um, kind of like a warrior monk. Um, and, and so then it's not so much of like a, a tug of war battle of like, what do I need to do every single day? It's just like, okay, let me go through my routine. I promise my four hours of studying. I'm going to do my hour of the gym, my whatever hours of class. Um, and I'm just going to go through and check off the, the, the checkbox. And so it becomes a little bit more of a habit in that case and, and less becomes less sort of discretionary in terms of your behavior so that things like procrastination don't take over when you've kind of stuck to a rigorous schedule and are on autopilot. All right, that was a lot. But Ben, is that helpful? Definitely, I've got a uh, page and a half of notes. <laughs> I will uh, work on cutting that in practice. And I think, I think the one thing that you put a name to that I was struggling with is the avoidance behaviors. Mm -hmm. One of my really close friends, um, we will start our, our kind of really um, intense, dedicated study period for this in about three weeks, and he hasn't even made a study plan yet. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know if he's like thinking about it or that, and I, I think what's probably a core of it is this avoidance and you know, not wanting to deal with the issue. So hopefully some of these things can, can help him overcome that too. Yeah, I'll add one last technique, um, which, is, which is really helpful for really tough uh, treatment resistant anxiety as, as, as I, as, as we would say, sort of say clinically when I, when I deal with people who have really bad avoidance behavior to your point, um, they're really bad procrastinators and sort of the cognitive and maybe even some of the behavioral techniques don't work as well. Um, sometimes I actually take a paradoxical intention, um, and try to a little bit like reverse it on them or shock them out of their, um, pre-existing patterns of behavior that have become unfortunately very ingrained, right? So the um, way that most people operate, which is sounds like what your friend is doing, 
is that they have this internal rule. They may not even be fully aware of it mentally. They're like, I, I cannot or don't want to feel anxious before I study or do my work, right? And so the way that they, they do that is they obviously put it off, right? They're like, they notice that their anxiety is rising. They're like, I have to write a study plan. Oh, that makes me too uncomfortable to think about all the pressure. So I'm going to put it off, right? Or they're sitting there and they're like, let me wait for my anxiety to go down. Let me, let me sharpen my pencil. Let me go check my email. Let me, let me check my social media a little bit. And so they're doing all these things to procrastinate because they're, they want to feel good before they start. If that's your goal, that's a disaster in that, that you should, you're never going to feel always good or optimal before you start. And if you think about it, think about people who have like a really like um, strict blue collar jobs where they got to literally punch in on the clock uh, on time every single day. For most people, you know, save being unfortunately really sick, they just show up to work every day, no matter how they feel, because they're like, if I don't, I'm going to get fired, right? And so it doesn't become a question of, of, I need to feel good to go to work. It's like, no, I go to work, rain, sleet or snow, anxiety, sadness, or depression. I just do it anyway. Um, and so it kind of gets out of that procrastinatory mode. And so the reverse or paradoxical approach, sometimes that I'll do if people are willing to kind of be a little bit playful, is I tell them um, that they should actually rethink their relationship with anxiety. So instead of thinking, like I said, anxiety is a problem and they need to make it go down before they can make a study plan, I actually tell them, you need anxiety and in fact, you should uh, conjure it or welcome it in order to do your study plan, right? And so I tell them, if you don't feel anxious, I actually don't want you to start, right? Uh, in, but if you're feeling slightly anxious, I want you to actually like work yourself up a little bit, like make yourself extra anxious and then use that and channel that productively into doing a study plan. And so you can obviously understand why that's paradoxical, right? They're like, I need to not feel anxious in order to do my work. And I'm like telling you, no, you, you need to be anxious to do your work. So try to rile yourself up, try to make yourself anxious. So one of two things happen if they do that. Sometimes paradoxically, trying to make yourself anxious doesn't work, right? And so they're sitting there and they're like, because when they're trying to make their anxiety down, that doesn't work either. So it's almost like, you know, when you try to force your body to do something, it doesn't listen to you. It's like a unruly teenager, right? In the, in the back of your brain. So ironically, trying to make yourself anxious doesn't work. I'll give you a great um, similar analogous uh, example to this. I, I had a client who, um, this is actually a supervisor's client, who um, had social anxiety because they, they blushed, right, in social situations. When they got anxious, their face would turn red and obviously they'd be very embarrassed. And so the paradoxical intention was my supervisor had this client try to blush in front of a mirror. And ironically, when he was trying to do it, he couldn't blush. When he was trying not to blush, he would blush, right? And so the same thing applies to anxiety, that when we try to make ourselves anxious and we're like, I want to have it go up from a five to an eight to a 10, it often doesn't work, which is, you know, ironically what we want. Or what happens is, let's say you successfully do work up your anxiety and you're thinking about, you know, the disaster, the catastrophe that's going to happen. But by telling yourself, I want it to be high so that I can study, um, it's not a problem if it is. So you're like, okay, great. I, I'm a nine out of 10 on anxiety now, and now I can start. So you're eliminating the avoidance behavior by because by welcoming or in fact conjuring or creating anxiety you are de facto increasing your willingness.
because by definition, you're saying I'm not starting until my anxiety is an eight out of 10. It's a five out of 10. I gotta, I gotta actually work up my anxiety. I gotta increase my anxiety a little bit more in order to start. You're, you're basically creating the opposite rule, which is I can't start until I'm anxious. And so I know it sounds a little crazy or paradoxical, but for, for some folks who are really, really bad procrastinators, if they really adopt that, now you obviously have to believe that and you have to put it into practice, it can be a very helpful paradoxical intention to just get going. Perfect, I'd like to give that, uh, that technique a try this weekend. So yeah, and, and report back. Uh, tell me, you know, I think I, I shared like four different techniques with you. So you have the, the buffet option of, of techniques for working with anxiety. But like I said, uh, as Bruce Lee said, uh, take what you take what's useful and leave the rest. So yeah, happy to hear back from you uh, on how that goes. All right, everyone, really, really great questions for today. We will follow up after the show with some show notes. Um, so join us in the um, Dr. Cam Radio Show channel. I'll put links to all of the uh, YouTube videos, links, books, etc., that I referenced uh, today. Um, so we had a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Ben, for asking the question about how do I deal with uh, anticipatory uh, anxiety and procrastination when you have a big event coming up. We talked a lot about sort of using CBT techniques, ACT techniques, and paradoxical intention techniques to deal with anxiety. Um, someone asked some really great questions about how do you do hormone testing? Um, and I'll, I talked about how to uh, test or calculate total and free testosterone, um, which will follow up um, and give links about. Um, and also we talked about sort of five foundational health behaviors to optimize your testosterone as well. And then Ritesh asked the question about uh, King Warrior Magician Lover and how do you sort of reconcile that with more modern evidence-based, uh, you know, therapy schools and philosophies. And, um, you know, I talked about how it sort of integrates with sort of Axe's concept of the self as story. Um, and that ultimately when you're listening to any book uh, or even person like me, uh, you all ultimately have to test it and make sure that it's useful to you in your real life. Because that, that to me is the true litmus test of any philosophy, treatment, or intervention is it has to work for you. So engage with it, try it out, and, and let us know how it works. So thanks for joining us on then. And uh, have a great, great week, everyone.